Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness to pray and to rest before he began his public ministry. This year during Lent, join Pastor Hook to pray and rest as we learn about our calling to be a life-changing connection to Christ in our world. We are in episode 12 of our series called Life-Changing Connection. And this is a series to look at various Bible verses to prepare us to launch out of Easter to create the the programs and train the people necessary to to launch in November. That's kind of the overall theme of this life-changing connection. And if you are listening to this or watching this on YouTube or Facebook, the, the goal is to kind of lay a theological foundation for some of the things that may happen. And this is probably more helpful for me than it is for anybody else because uh, you know, as a pastor, we want to follow theologically everything that we're supposed to follow. We don't want to lead our congregation down paths that are not biblical or not correct. And so one of the things that happens as a pastor is you go to seminary and they teach you how to be a pastor based upon the things that the church has done in the past, right? I mean, the the church obviously grows and evolves and moves and changes. And so when you go to seminary, it's it's basically kind of like what we've been doing for the last 50 years. Well, the only issue with that is that, as you, if you've noticed in Protestantism, the vast majority of churches that are out there just seem to be not connecting. And what I mean by that is we seem to have done, I'm not even talking about the number of people in congregations on Sunday morning. I'm just talking about the level of anger, animosity, um, uh, unrest in our society around us. And the church is the healing force of the world around us, right? Jesus commissioned his church to go and make disciples. Why? To redeem the world. So when I went to seminary, I kind of learned the things that they teach in seminary, which is all great and fine and good. But when you get, when you get to a church and you start to practice these things, you find out that some of the things you think that are supposed to be effective aren't effective, and some of the things you don't think are gonna be effective are very effective. And as a pastor, looking around at other churches, looking around at other methods of teaching and discipling, you you realize that maybe what what you kind of grew up with (laughs) is not necessarily as effective as what you think the world needs or what you think God's calling your church to do. And so me personally, I have been on a quest, I guess, pretty much since day one of leading this congregation to figure out what is it that God's calling us to do. And we've gone through different strategic plans. We've pulled people together. We've looked at our mission. We've looked at our vision. And all of that is great stuff. But all of it ultimately has to resonate with our congregation, resonate with me, and still be biblical and scriptural. And so the purpose of this 40-day journey then is to hopefully communicate some of the lessons that I think that God has laid upon my heart over the last 15 years of our congregation and hopefully uh, motivate and excite our congregation to launch in November to do some things that may be different, maybe the same, maybe some old things, maybe some new things, I don't know. But let's lay out the 
scriptural basis for it. And then let's, um, using that then, create whatever it is that we need to create to launch forward in November. And um, I guess another another thing is that um, the more the more we can motivate and excite people to do specific tasks in our congregation, the more we can mo- motivate people to follow Jesus well. I guess that probably didn't come out very well. I, I believe that it's not just enough to show up on Sunday morning and learn the lessons. I think from there, it must be brought back to the home. It must be brought back to your community. It must be brought back to your to your group of friends. It must be brought back into the way you lead or the way you serve or the way you work in your workplace, the, the activities that you do throughout your life. The lessons on Sunday morning get, get um, infused in your life, and then you use those lessons time after time after time again. We're in a Bible study, uh, a series right now on Sunday morning called Troubled Hearts. And as I look around the world today, I just see a lot of troubled hearts. And when there's troubled hearts in the world, it is the church of God, this, this, these followers, the, the called out ones, who are equipped to be pastoral and loving and caring and to help people through these problems they're having in life. And um, it just seems like the problems are multiplying and multiplying. And so we really, um, Jesus once said, the harvest is plenty and the laborers are few. And so I believe that that the harvest right now is very, very plentiful. And we have to define laborers better as not just the guy preaching on Sunday morning, but all the church being laborers to do whatever they can to heal the world and heal some of the problems that exist in our workplace and on the internet and social media and government and all that sort of thing. We're, we are probably the only hope. We are the only hope for mankind because we've been blessed by Jesus and empowered by his spirit to, uh, to redeem the world and to be a force for his kingdom in the world. All right, so... That being said, it's probably longer than I've wanted to go to on that topic, is that we have been talking about how did the early church do it? Because the early church was so successful. Oh my goodness. The early church grew from 12 guys and maybe some family associated with that to being the most powerful within three or 400 years. They had completely taken over the Roman Empire. They had then from there, they completely taken over Europe. And now they are in every locale anywhere in the world, except for very, very, very few indigenous tribal people in the Amazon, you know, rainforest. The, the force for good that Jesus brought into the world is everywhere and has eradicated so much evil in the world. For example, in the early church, when they went and and brought Christianity to any nation. They they were they pretty much allowed any nation to kind of exist as they were existing. They just infused the teachings of Jesus into it. But if it was a culture that did human sacrifice, either child sacrifice or human sacrifice, and there've been many 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 cultures throughout the world. That was one place where the church said, "No, we're not going to allow this anymore." And they used the power and the force of the church to stop that. Because every life is valued. And of course, 
Today, sociologists might say, well, it's not fair for you to go and change the culture. If they believe that human sacrifice is a good thing and they're doing it in their culture, you shouldn't change it, right? But that was that is just something that's not acceptable to our teaching as Christians. And so there is, I, I don't think there are very many, there might be, I don't know because I haven't looked, but there are very, very few major empires out there that now do human sacrifice. It's just gone. It was wiped off the face of the earth because of the power of the church. And so uh, there have been many, many other things that have been, that have benefited our culture because of the church. The fact that each individual has value, getting rid of what they call the caste system or the caste system, where some people just have no value whatsoever and other people have tremendous value. Uh, that, that, that is in the case system, you have the lowest of the low life, right? That, that are there because in a previous life they were, they were bad people. And so now they're kind of getting their karma in this life because they were bad people in the last life. And so we really don't even want to love them. And yet you see, we even partner with a group called Crossing Cambodia, which actually does go and find these street children and love them and give them an education and compassion and a foothold in life and say, yes, you do have value. I don't care what the culture around you says. You have value. And all of that comes about because of Christianity. It all comes about because of Jesus. When Jesus came to this earth and gathered around 12 disciples around him, it was a force for good that has brought so much good in our world around us. And there are a lot of people that say, oh, the church, they're just about power and they're just about money and they're just about, you know, influence and all that sort of thing. Well, that is part of, I mean, obviously that an organization called a church wants to have a little bit of power. And of course, they have to have money to operate and all that sort of thing. But um, even when they had no money, when they had no power, they had no influence. All they had were 12 guys. It was the messages and the teachings of Jesus that brought about an incredible change to the Roman Empire and and then the whole world. And we forget that. Our our Western culture forgets that because we think that, you know, the way that we treat people today and and the laws that we have today and the good that's around the world today is all because of maybe science or technology or just because humankind is a good. And the answer is no, humankind... Uh, has an incredible capacity for evil. We've seen that time after time after. We even see that in today's society. The only force for good really is Jesus and his love and his compassion and what he did 2,000 years ago. So they're just mistaken. That's all I can say. The the best force for good in this world is Jesus. So um, how do we get to a place where you have 12 guys that take over the Roman Empire? What is it that they did And that's worth looking because I think that we need to incorporate some of their techniques and some of their teachings in our world today and in our church today to be more effective to the world around us because obviously what we've been doing for the last hundred years has been losing ground. Even though I do believe that the United States and Western culture as a Christian culture is doing doing some incredibly good stuff for the world, there's no question. But I think the world has lost sight of the fact that most of this good that's in the world has come about because of the church. Um, and just I'll just give you an example of that. In Western culture, who who started uh, who started hospitals? Like where did that start? 
you know, hospitals started by a bunch of Christians gathering together to say, we need to, we need to um, be with these people in their time and, and heal them and give them drugs and medicine and all that sort of thing. I mean, even before there were drugs and medicine, they still had hospitals to care for people who were sick and then let the body heal itself. All that started with, with Christianity. That's where it started. And then, of course, it got took over, taken over by the medical community and governments. And now, I mean, used to have like St. Joseph's in town was owned by, you know, I think it was owned by the Roman Catholic Church. I think this was started by the Roman Catholic Church. And now it's because of the rules and the regulations and the cost of medicine and all that, a church no longer has the financial wherewithal to run a hospital. So it's been taken out of the hands of the church and put into the medical community. And the medical community, you know, is, is running it as best as they can. You have TMC, you have Banner, you have uh, U of A, you have all these different medical hospitals doing medical work in the world. And what they've lost, I think a little bit, is the fact that medicine at its root is also spiritual. That getting better isn't just about the disease and the virus and all that sort of thing, but there's a spiritual component to medicine. And we've separated that. And so that is an unfortunate thing. Orphanages were started by the church, right? Um, missionary societies going around into the world and making the conditions of the world better. That was all, I mean, all the, if you look at the last 100, 200 years of all the great things that have happened in the world, it's not governments and it's not people with power and influence. It's just a bunch of people that are followers of Jesus Christ that go and do the good things in the world. So don't let anybody ever tell you that the church is evil and bad and that they're they're, I mean, obviously there are bad people in the church, but they're redeemed. And obviously there's bad players and there's bad churches. There's churches out there that are giving Christianity a horrible name. And that's unfortunate too. There are preachers out there that are giving the church a horrible name. That's unfortunate too. But at its root, Jesus Christ is the best hope for mankind. And will eventually redeem this world. I'm convinced of it. If we do the things the church has been called to do, if, we, um, if we're not addicted to the way that things have been done in the past and open to the possibility to how God can use his church to redeem the world in the future, I think the sky's the limit and that we can do great things, continue to do great things in the world around us. What we have to do, though, is you have to be brave and bold and look at what works and do those things. Look at what doesn't work and stop doing those things and make disciples. Make disciples. That's how the church grows, making disciples. How did Jesus do it? Well, <laughs> he gathered together. It was very, the way Jesus did it was very organic, right? He uh, gathered together, he selected his disciples. He got a three-year commitment with them. Actually, for all of them, it was a lifetime commitment. They lived life together. It wasn't like they came one day a week or one day a month or had a retreat or something like that. They lived life together and did discipling together. Jesus taught very organically. They'd be walking down the street and Jesus would see a situation or a tree or whatever, and he would use that as a teaching moment. He might even sit down with his disciples and spend a day, all day, teaching about that particular thing. It was very much what I call organic or relevance. We have an early childhood. Rigor, relevance, and relationship is our motto for how we teach our children. Oh, there's another train going by. Rigor, relevance, and relationship. 
And that really is the Jesus method of discipleship. He would, he taught everything he wanted to teach, but he did it as as life unfolded behind, you know, around them. And the truth is, this happens in our world today, in families, in small groups, or whatever. If you'll remember in the Old Testament, the um, the way it's in a very it's a very efficient way to teach God's word to the family. In the Old Testament, you had a person called the head of household. This was the person that went to the synagogue and learned himself how to be a follower of Yahweh. They sat in the temple, they read scripture, they they debated scripture, they talked about scripture, and then this head of the household would go back to his home and he would teach his children and everybody in the household, it could, be, it could be more than just children, it could be everybody that lived in this household, because he was the spiritual head of the household. He would come back to the household and teach. And this was the way it was in Jesus' day, too. It's actually the way it was in Paul's day, because they were all so seeped in Judaism that that method of teaching, which is very, very effective, because the household, remember, we didn't have weekends in the, in the Old Testament, and even in the early church, there was no such thing as a weekend. That is a modern Western society thing that that has only happened probably in the last one or two hundred years. I, I should find out when the weekend started. Um, now, the day of Sabbath happened during, in a Jewish culture, there was a day of Sabbath, but the day of Sabbath was reserved for teaching God's word. But other than that, you know, people had to work seven days a week uh, in, in most cultures. And so this whole idea about uh, the way that they did it was to send somebody off from the household to go to synagogue to learn and then to come back and teach it to the family. It's a way that the family can continue doing the things that needed to be done because there's always way too much work to be done. Uh, and then bringing and infusing those things into the family. So as the, as the dad is out there with his sons working in the field and he comes across something that can teach a lesson about God, about Yahweh. He would teach those things in the field. I mean, he infused these things into the teaching every day into every aspect of life so that when Jesus came along and used this method of teaching, it was very, very natural. It was very organic. He, they just lived life together. That's how they did it. Well, then what happened? Uh, well, and just one other thing. This actually was true even at the Protestant Reformation when Luther wrote his small catechism, the small catechism. In the introduction, he said this. He said, Luther's small catechism introduction. This is just on the first page. He says, as the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to his household. As the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to his household. So even by the time of the Protestant Reformation, this idea that discipleship happens in the household was very, very prevalent. Very, very prevalent. What, what is wrong with this? I mean, like, why can't we continue to do this? Well, a couple things. First of all, somehow in the Protestant Reformation, we've gone from a head of household model to the whole household model. Because we've created Sunday morning as such an event that the whole household wants to go to that event, which is fine. They should. And families worship together at that event, which is fine. I mean, it's just, it works great. 
for the last 500 years. You know, the whole household goes to church. They listen to the message. You know, you have this this preacher up there preaching the message. Uh, and then they leave and they go home and they might reflect on that. And the, pa- the, the head of the household might say, okay, this is what we learned today. Let's talk about it. And actually... They might spend the rest of the day just digesting that message that happened in the home. That's great. I mean, it's phenomenally great. Did you know, you probably don't know this, the Sunday school movement actually didn't happen until the 1800s. Um, and it highly aligned with Methodism. I, I used to think that um, Charles Wesley started Sunday school, but I think it happened around the time of Wesley. Um, but the whole idea of having Sunday school was not part of the church for the first 1800 years. I mean, you basically went to church and then you came home and you you learned all these lessons at home. The, but that we found out that there were a lot of people in culture as the breakdown of the family started happening, believe it or not, in the 1800s, there was a breakdown of the family. There was there was uh, orphans, orphanages started in the, in the 1800s because there, the church or the culture, or maybe both, just started ignoring widows and orphans. James said we have to have widows. You know, the number one thing a church should do is look after widows and orphans. And and somehow the church and society lost sight of that. And so by the time the 1800s happened, there were lots of widows and orphans. There were people out there that were not being taught the basics of the faith because they weren't in a strong family and they didn't have a strong family head of household leading that family. And so... In the 1800s, they developed orphanages and they developed Sunday school. And in Sunday school, they would go out and find people on the street and they would bring them in. They would teach them the basics of Christianity, which eventually became the public school system. And again, that's another thing that was always done by the church. The schooling and training of people was always done either in the household or in the household in combination with the church. But somehow the church and the government kind of left people out there also. And so you have this guy, Horace Mann, was the superintendent of schooling in Boston in the 1800s. And he proposed the very, very first public school system where they would actually train people in, because up until that time, up until the 1870s or whatever, whenever Horace Mann lived, 1890s, I'm not entirely sure. Up until that point, all the education was done in private schools, private churches, in the family, all that sort of thing. Then you have the Industrial Revolution. There's things that have to be learned. Horace Mann said, we've got poverty because we are leaving people out of the education system. And so he created the first public education system to supplement private education, to allow people who are at the lowest end of society who had no money, who had no power, no influence to be able to get an education so that they could also have a handhold in society. The promise he made is that if we could educate, if everybody could get an education to learn how to read and write, and that's all it was, just if everybody could get an education to learn how to read and write, we would solve poverty, we would solve all the injustices of the world, everybody would be have an equal footing in the world because they'd be able to read and write. So here we are 140 years later from that moment in time. And have we eliminated poverty? Have we eliminated uh, education? All No, because it was taken over by the, it was taken over by agencies that forget the spiritual component of education, forget the spiritual component of orphanages, forget the spiritual component of, of healing. I mean, 
just because the government and here in the United States, it's it's because we have separation of church and state. Once it you know gets taken over by the state, then the state doesn't allow any discussion about God, about healing, about religion, about the spiritual aspect of all of these things, and it's it's just not good. And somehow we, as a church, living in a world that has the separation of church and state, that's never going to go away. We have to ask ourselves, how can we bring in the spiritual component to all these things and um, make sure the people who are in orphanages or make sure people who are in, um, you know, that's another one. Um, adoption. Adoption is, <laughs> was started by the Christian church, right? I mean, it is a Christian thing, but now it's been taken over by agencies and they've lost the spiritual component to it. I could probably go through thousands and thousands of things that the state is doing. And because of this separation of church and state, they're not doing it well. Um, because there's always a spiritual component to everything. Because there's always hurt in the world. And whenever there's hurt in the world, people lash out and say, why is this happening to me? And at that point, you need spiritual people, people who are filled with God that can come and walk along beside them and say, it's okay, God still loves you. You are still a valued child of God. You'll get through this. We'll get through this together. All those kinds of things. And another one is counseling, right? Counseling was basically just pastoral pastoral love to our people around us. And then we professionalized this and now we have counselors. We have a whole profession called counseling. And um, eh, I could go on and on about the things of this world that are where there's a separation between the spiritual component and the non-spiritual component and how that's been a breakdown in our society. And we need to figure this out because people don't need just information. They need care. They need love. They need pastoral love. And we will figure it out as a church. I had, I did not plan. I have a whole 20 slides that I was planning to go into today. But sometimes God just fills me with words that uh, I'm sharing with you. So that's what he's done with me. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, be with your church as we figure out how to do the things that you've taught us, that you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.